We've been walking through this journey through the book of Acts. We are on Acts chapter 8. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and there are people who would love to put a Bible in your hand. But we're in Acts chapter 8, and we've just kind of, verse by verse, kind of walked through the story uh, of the early church. Now, this week, I was at a pastor's conference in Tampa, uh, and I occasionally do some of those things, and I was asked to do some teaching there and, and as I do this thing, I, I sometimes tell a story about uh, a TV show by Aaron Sorkin. Anybody fans of Aaron Sorkin? He's the guy that did the West Wing. Um, any, we got one person that's a fan of Aaron's? Come on. We're, okay, we're going to do like a viewing of the West Wing at, at church because like, well, yeah, we need some Josiah Bartlett. Up, is that his name? Is, was that the president? Yeah, we need some Josiah Bartlett in America these days, right? Uh, so we're, oh, it's amazing. But Aaron Sorkin's a, a writer. He writes TV shows, writes movies. He's one of my favorites. Uh, he just writes dialogue really brilliantly. Um, really good writer. And he had a show that didn't last very long called Studio 60. Anybody see Studio 60? Anybody remember this? It was Chandler from Friends, who was the main character in the drama, which might be why it didn't go so well. Uh, uh, but it, it was a drama about a sketch comedy show. And so it was like this drama about Saturday Night Live was what it was about. And it was really good, but people didn't like it apparently because it only lasted like five minutes. But in one of the episodes of the show, and I, I, when, when I go to pastor's conferences, I kind of speak to this room full of pastors, and, and I, I tell this story often because it's sometimes what it feels like to be a pastor. In, the, in this show, uh, the producer of the show is Chandler, uh, I don't think his name was Chandler. Like he wasn't, he, he, was, he was like a new character. But the guy that played, what's his name? Anybody know? Matthew Perry. Yeah, there you go. Matthew Perry. And he's the producer of this sketch comedy show. And the, the episode opens with a shot of him sitting at his desk and back behind him is this clock. And this clock is ticking down to when the, the show is on TV. Right? So you can see, and the way Sorkin does it is brilliant. So the whole show is all of these conflicts and troubles, all of these things that go wrong, all of these like adversarial things. Like I think the, 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 the host of the week gets arrested and they've got to go and get him out of prison. The band cancels on them. Um, one of the cast members breaks his leg. Like everything that could go wrong preparing for the show is going wrong. And every time, right before it goes to commercial break, they show the clock and they show Chandler getting more and more worked up and nervous because the show is coming. And so at the end of the show, everything works out in the end. I don't know. They got the, go the host out of jail. They got a new band that came in. Like the, I don't know what happened. The person broke their leg, but they did something funny. Everybody laughed. The show happened. It was great. And, and Sorkin brilliantly at the end of the show shows Matthew Perry, who's sitting at his desk like this, and he looks up at the camera and he goes, and takes this giant deep, like, I'm so relieved. I can't believe it happened. I can't believe we did it. And then the camera pans up to the clock that ticks towards the next show. And every time I tell this story to a room of pastors, I talk about this is often what it feels like when Sunday is coming. That Sunday is approaching, 
And on Sunday, there's going to be a room full of people that want to hear something from you, and they want to hear something better than what you did last week, and you got to pull everything together, and you got to make everything work, and it's exhausting, and it's tiring, and it's frustrating sometimes, and every time I tell this story, I get this amazing response from pastors. So I'm standing afterwards, and this pastor comes up to me, and he says, you told that story about Aaron Sorkin or Chandler or whatever, and And in the middle of it, like, I just started weeping. He said, because what I've been doing week after week, month after month, year after year, is killing myself so that I can create more consumers. We've created a culture around the church, which is about consumerism. It's about how do I show up on Sunday to get the religious goods and services that I need? How do I show up to the church that's going to wow me the most, that's going to entertain me the most? How do I show up to the place that's going to do the biggest thing that has the biggest thing going on? And, and we've created this culture. And so this pastor was just sitting there weeping and he said to me, I'm ready for something new. And I said, that's the space where Christ always wants us to start is when we're at the space where we're ready for something new, that's where the power and the kingdom of God wants to break through in our life. It's when we reach a place where we say, I can't go through these motions anymore. I can't play the game with the clock anymore, ticking down to Sunday. I'm not going to create a culture that's just creating more and more consumers, but I'm actually going to lean into the idea of what Jesus said, which is we're going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And that's what we're going to do. And that's what we're going to lean into. Do you know that right, like right now on our Facebook page or on our, our Google site, you can look up Grace Marietta Church and on Google, you can review our church and give us a certain amount of stars. Do you know that this is how our stupid world works? Right? There is a, there's a video by a comedian named John Christ. Anybody know John Christ? Uh, funny guy. I think he's from Atlanta. Is he from Atlanta? Yeah. Yeah, uh, but he, he, he's got this video where he just, ta- he just reads Google reviews of churches, and it's absolutely hysterical, and he reads it in like this really whiny voice. It's like, well, nobody said hi to me, or like, they didn't sing the song that I wanted them to sing. It's all these kinds of things, but we have to understand this, and this is so significant and so important. This is the world that we live in, and we don't understand how deeply ingrained in all of us is individualism, which is me first. I'm the most important thing in the world. I'm after what's best for me. And consumerism, which is I can buy and sell and get and and grab everything that I want at the press of a button and everything is downloadable and everything is quick and everything is easy and everything is right there and available to us. And this is how we see church. We see church as this commodity to be bought, to be sold, to be consumed, to be grabbed rather than seeing church as the family of God on mission together to redeem and restore the world around us. There is a huge distinction between those two. And can I be honest that as a pastor, there's a tension in that. And so in Acts chapter eight, we come in contact with this exact scenario happening in the early church where the people of God are coming into contact for the first time with this group of people who want some, they want to be amazed. They want something incredible to happen. They want to be wowed. They want the best thing that's ever happened to show up, but they don't actually want and desire the living God. 
And there's a really strong rebuke and challenge in here for us. Acts chapter eight, verse four. It says, those who had been scattered. So remember last week, we ended with Stephen being stoned, right? Um, killed, right? Not smoking. Uh, stoned, right? So, so Stephen, is, Stephen is killed. He's persecuted. He's like the, he's the, he's the first of the second generation disciples that has gone out and done amazing things. He's preaching, he's doing signs and wonders. And so there's this incredible thing happening where the second generation of disciples are doing what the disciples did. Because all the disciples are trying to do right now is do what Jesus did. But they're also training people to be like him, which is exactly what we want the church to be, is we wanna make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the vision of who we wanna become, is we wanna live like Jesus, train other people to live like Jesus, who then train other people to live like Jesus, and suddenly we've got something multipliable that's happening in the world that's changing everything. This is what's happening here. But when Stephen was persecuted and the religious leaders kind of made a statement at that time, we're not playing around anymore, right? We're not putting up with this. If we catch you, we're going to kill you. And in a crazy way, what that, ha- what that did was it started the church to scatter, Now, remember Jesus' command to his disciples. He said, I want you to go, and I want you to go to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he's, well, each of those are are concentric circles that are growing outward, right? So Jerusalem's here, Judea's here, Samaria's here, ends of the earth is all over the place. Actually, the ends of the earth, we're gonna talk about this next week, but in, in that time, the ends of the earth was Ethiopia. That's what they believe the ends of the earth was. Uh, and we're gonna talk about that next week because we're running into the Ethiopian eunuch next week, which is another crazy person that happens and pops up in Acts. So those who had been scattered, they scattered because they're afraid they were gonna be killed. So what happened was the persecution of the church, the crisis became the catalyst to their obedience. So uh, everybody's being persecuted, everybody's being killed, but it actually forces them to step into spaces where they're obedient and they become the people that God has called us to be. Sometimes what happens in our life is bad things happen, things that we wouldn't want to happen, things that we wouldn't plan to happen, but what those bad things do is they lead us into the good things that God has for us. They become like the light bulb that clicks in our mind to say, wait a minute, something better is available for us wait a minute, maybe this job is not the job that I should be working in. Maybe this crisis is actually God moving me and stirring something new. Maybe what I thought was a death is actually a resurrection. This is what's happened. We've gotten three words into the verse. Those have been scattered and preached. They preached the word wherever they went. And Philip, now Philip is one of the seven that was chosen around the the setting of tables. So he's kind of a deacon, right? He's kind of one of the people that the disciples chose and said, we need people to step in because it wouldn't be good for us to just all week be serving food. We need somebody else. And so Philip, just like Stephen, is one of these second generation leaders. So Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now there's huge significance in Samaria also. Samaria are, the Samaritans are the people that were with God's people when they were in Babylon. There is a long, long, long history throughout the Bible of the Samaritans and the Jews in conflict. There's hostility towards one another. There's racial tension. There's cultural tension. There's all kinds of tension around these two different people groups. And one of the things that is becoming a theme in Acts, and we're going to see it explode here in the next few weeks, 
is this idea of the gospel is for everyone. It's for all people groups. It's for everyone. It's not just for the chosen few. It's not just for the churchgoers. It's not just for the people that are like us. It's not just for the people that look like us. It's actually for our enemies as well. It's actually for the people that if we were honest, we might demonize or dehumanize. It's actually for other people. It's not just for the chosen few of the church. And so Samaria is incredibly significant. Jesus went to Samaria, right? Jesus sat with a Samaritan woman. He told a parable of the good Samaritan, where the Samaritan, who's supposed to be the enemy, became the hero of the story for doing the right thing. And so Jesus was breaking down racial barriers. He was breaking down racial tensions. He was breaking down divisions. He was breaking down naming others as others and saying the gospel is for everyone. And so Philip is just doing what Jesus did. He's just continuing the work of Jesus. And so he went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed Jesus there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they, played, they paid close attention to what he said. Jesus said, this is a person of peace. That's what it is. When you go into a city and you find a person of peace, you find a place where your peace rests, you find people that are open and receptive to the message that you're giving, then you stay there and you spend time with them. And anytime you find people that are open to the message of the gospel, you stay there and you invest, you disciple. You, that, that's where you put down roots. That's where you invest your ministry time. And so he stays there. And, and here's what it says. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. So there's a laying down of cultural prejudice. There's a laying down of biases and there's a picture of Philip saying, I'm going to go to the place where everybody believes if I go there, I'm going to become unclean or something bad is going to happen to me. And what happens there is the people who the people of God believe wouldn't receive the message, receive it with joy. And we would be silly to imagine that in our culture, there are not others. That in our culture, there's not people that we think this message is not for them. This message is for us. And what Jesus is doing is breaking down those walls. And so Philip steps into it and follows him. And there's great joy and great reception. And all of a sudden, something great starts to happen in Samaria, which is what Jesus said. All right, so here's another lesson that's so significant for us. What Jesus calls us to, he equips us for. And so when we get a word from the Father that says, go to Samaria... And Samaria seems scary. And Samaria seems like a place where I'm not equipped to do this. I'm guessing that Philip had not spent a lot of time in Samaria. I'm guessing Philip was not a cultural expert in Samaria. I'm guessing that Philip had not spent his whole life studying Samaritan culture. He was not quite equipped to go and do this. But he didn't say to Jesus, I can't go to Samaria. I need to take some more theology classes. I gotta figure this out. I gotta know more. I gotta learn more. I gotta be more prepared. He stepped out in obedience. And when he stepped out in obedience, the presence of God, the power of God showed up in remarkable ways. This is oftentimes how the spirit of God works. He calls us to something that feels bigger than what we can accomplish, something that feels scary, something that feels frightening. And we have the choice in that moment to say, I can't do it, right? Like Moses at the burning bush, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not good at this. Who, who do I say sent me? All of these excuses start rolling in our head. And God says, I'm gonna give you 
what you need when you step out into the places that I've called you to, which is really significant for the life of our church right now, guys. Is we're reaching a point where we've got to start reaching out. We've got to start reaching our hands out into the community. We've got to start doing more. We've got to start finding our mission and stepping into the places that Christ has called us to. And I'm guessing that there's many in the room right now who are feeling a stirring from the Father. The Lord's stirring some things up. I keep hearing stories of, I think God's calling me to do this, or I think God's leading us to do this, or what if we tried this, all of these things. But I also hear the fear that comes with all of those things. But I'm a little afraid. I don't know that I'm good enough. I don't know that I got it figured out. I don't have a theology degree. I don't, I don't know all the answers to all the questions. I, I, I don't know all the logistics of how this all works out. And what we have to understand is what Christ sends us to, he equips us for. Verse nine. Now for some time, Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and he had amazed all the people of Samaria. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, this is weird, right? I, I, I love it. I love the picture of who the early church is actually attracting, right? This is the picture I have of Simon in my head. There he is. I don't, I don't know why, but I... I have a picture of Simon is like this guy who plays Dungeons and Dragons, who loves Renaissance festivals and has never kissed a girl, right? That's just, that's the image I have in my mind. And I'm sorry if I just described you because I think I did just describe some people in our church. Uh, but, but, but that's Simon, right? Simon is this guy, he's, he's this source. It's for some ways, I don't, I don't know whether he actually has some power and he's actually doing some amazing things. I don't know if he's just like, good at tricks or something like that. I don't know what's going on with Simon, but Simon has drawn this crowd to him and Simon is all about like, pay attention to me. Like it says, here, here's some things that it says in, in that passage right there. It says, he, he practiced sorcery. He amazed the people. He boasted that he was someone great and everybody said he was the great power of God. So people started following Simon. This is like the type of guy that comes to your church plant. Right? This is the type of guy that shows up at church and you got to figure out what are we going to do with the guy that's dressed up like a wizard, right? These are the types of things you got to figure out for the church. But what the church does is the church invites him in. There's this beautiful thing happening in the early church where it's not a set of religious elite that are all coming to know Christ. It's people from all different backgrounds, all different beliefs, all different ages, all different classes, all different races. This huge group of people are coming together to worship God, and so they invite him in. So verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip comes, he starts preaching, and he starts preaching to Simon's crew, and Simon's crew's like, we want to get baptized. We, wanna, we want this God. We're, we're with you. We're ready. We believe in the message that you've given. And so then Simon himself believed, and he was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere. This is, I, I, my picture of this is he's not the guy you want following you everywhere. You guys have a person like this in your life? 
Nobody's willing to admit it, but you all do, right? There is somebody that might follow you everywhere that may not be the person that you want to follow you everywhere. He's like always on Philip's hip. He's watching what Philip does. He's like, hey, Philip, let's go watch the game. I guess he's probably not watching games, but let's, let's go do something. Like, let's, let's cast some spells. I don't know what he's doing. Let's watch Harry Potter movies. I, I don't know what he's doing, but he's trying to draw Philip into this relationship with him, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished. Listen, he's astonished, but listen to what he's astonished by. He's astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. He's astonished by what is happening. He's amazed by what's going on. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So Peter and John are like the elders of the movement now. They're like, we're going to send you here. Something's happening. Something significant is going on. We're going to send you there. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's a pattern forming in the early church. It's the same pattern that Jesus talked of. And it's this pattern of repent, believe, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Those are the four steps. And we see this over and over repeating again in the early church. When people hear the good news of Jesus, the first thing that they do is they repent. Repentance is agreeing with God about reality. It's saying your way is better than my way. And so I'm turning from my way. I'm turning from the direction that I've been heading and I'm heading in a new direction. Then believing, believing is having faith that Jesus is who he says he is and does what he says he's going to do. That God is the God who keeps his promises and so we can trust him. And then the next step is to be baptized, which by the way, in just a few weeks, we're doing baptisms up in here. October 14th, we're doing baptisms. And I would suggest if you've not been baptized and if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a great place for you to step into obedience. If Jesus asks us to do it, then we should do it. If this was the pattern of the early church, then we should do it. And I know it's liturgical and I know it's an outer expression of an inward commitment, but it is something that's important and significant. If you wanna get baptized, go to the uh, welcome desk afterwards and just say, I'm ready to get baptized. We've got a big crew that's getting baptized on October 14th. And I would love, I'd love it if the whole service was just baptisms. I would be, I would be all for that. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-baptism, guys. I'm pro-baptism. And so this is the pattern that's starting, but here's something new happens where Peter comes and he prays that they would receive the Holy Spirit. There's something really powerful. So in the American church, we have become very good at repent, believe, and be baptized. That's the pattern of every church that I'm a part of. Every denomination that I know, this is, this is a huge part. Now, they, they operate those things a little differently. People believe different things. But for the most part, those three patterns are the pattern of the early church. Praying that we would receive the, the Holy Spirit is something that's foreign to most American churches. Praying that we would receive anything in general is foreign. So what we often do is we pray for solutions instead of praying to the source. So we go to the Father and we say, Lord, here's all of my five problems that I need you to solve, and will you give me these solutions? And that's what our prayer life looks like. And what we're asking for is we're asking God to just give us answers, to just give us solutions, to just like be this genie that solves all of our problems for us rather than trusting him as our source. So repentance is agreeing with God about reality. Belief is trusting that he is who he says he is and that he's gonna do what he says he's going to do. And so what we understand is that when we pray, prayer is not something that we do, it's something that God does in us. 
And so we go to him knowing that we want to receive from him. There's something incredibly powerful about taking a posture of receiving from the Father. Some of us in the room are not really great at receiving. Right? Have you ever had a hard time receiving a compliment? Like, it's great for you to give compliments to other people, but somebody gives you a compliment and you're like, I, I don't know what to do with this. I gotta, like, I, I'm not sure what to do with my hands. Like, I, I don't know how to handle this in this moment, and so we don't know how to receive it. Any of you good at giving gifts, but not so great at receiving them? Any of you great at serving others, but not so great at receiving the service from others? There is a deficiency in our ability to receive in the American church. And part of that is because our individualism and our consumerism is because we believe that we're first and our needs are first. And we also believe that we've figured it out. We're Americans. We get stuff done. We make stuff. We, we, we technologically figure things out. If we don't have an answer for it, we'll put a group of people on it and we'll figure it out in the next 10 years. We throw some money at it. We throw smart people at it and we figure things out. And that puts us in a position where it's really difficult for us to pray and say, I want to receive. But imagine how our lives would be different if, if we actually received the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our life every day. Imagine how radically transformed our spiritual journey would be if we actually heard the still small voice of the Father in our head every single day, leading us to the places that he's called us to. Telling us the good news about himself, reminding us of the truth, reminding us that he's faithful and true and good, all of those things. Imagine if we knew how to walk in faith every day, how to walk In the spirit, imagine if we, like Jesus, were oftentimes led by the spirit into all kinds of different places in our life. It would radically transform our life, but we don't tend to know how to pray to receive the spirit. We know how to pray to get stuff done. And there's a huge gap between those two things. We pray so that something happens rather than pray so that the Holy Spirit and the, and, and the living God would be real to us, would move in our life, and would transform us from the inside out. And so one of the disciplines of the early church was that they simply knew how to pray to receive. With arms open, they knew how to say, we want more of you. And our growth isn't so much found in our ability to achieve, but in our ability to receive. It's not so much found in what I can accomplish, but in what the Father wants to give me. And so there was this beautiful rhythm in the early church of people praying for others that they would receive, that they would receive the power of God, that they would receive the presence of God, that they would receive the hope of God, that they would receive the salvation of God, that they would receive the joy that the Father gives them, that they would receive the wisdom that the Father offers us, knowing that every good gift comes from the Father. And so we go to him, the source, asking to receive from him. For some reason, we often feel like asking to receive is a selfish request. Like, I can't go and ask God to give me a bunch of stuff because if I'm asking to receive, that's selfish. But what we don't understand is that when we ask the Father to receive, He's going to give generously, but He's also going to challenge us like crazy. He's going to push us. He's going to challenge us. He's going to call us to things that are dangerous, that are scary. He's going to call us to a life of adventure. It's as if we're asleep. Ephesians says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and the love of Christ will shine upon you. 
Like there's this way that we can go through life where we don't receive, where we don't step into the things that God has called us to. Verse 18. So when Simon saw the spirit was given and the laying of the hands on the apostles, the apostles laying their hands on others, he offered them money. And he said, give me this ability also so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive your Holy Spirit. What Simon still wants is he still wants to be amazed. Just like the religious leaders last week, he wants the power of God without the presence of God. He wants the works of God without the way of God. He wants to see God do amazing and incredible things, but he doesn't actually want to know God himself. So I I don't know what he wants in here, but, but maybe he wants the Holy Spirit because he wants more people to follow him. Or maybe he wants to draw a bigger crowd. Maybe he wants just to figure out how this power works. Like he knows some sorcery. He knows some magic. He wants to figure out how to do this magic. And so I want more of that. Maybe he wants to charge people for the Holy Spirit. You come, I'll lay hands on you. You give me $10 and you'll get the Holy Spirit. I know some churches that have worked that way, right? Um, uh, Maybe he wants, like, there's all these things that he wants. And sometimes what happens is we want the right things for the wrong reasons. We want the power of God, but not for the will of God. We want the presence of God, but not for the purpose of God. And so we lean into these things that are the right things. We're asking for the right things, but we're asking them for the wrong reasons. And the Father knows our motivations. He knows our heart. He knows that when the object of our faith is anything other than the triune God and worshiping him, then we're worshiping an idol and we're not worshiping God himself. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What he's saying is we've begun to worship the created things over the creator. And there are cultures where we worship the power of God, the amazement of God, the great things that God can do rather than worshiping God himself. We're worshiping the works of God. Scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. What we often do is we want the added things before we want the kingdom. So we're not seeking the source. We're not seeking to receive from the Father. We're seeking all the added things, the power, the presence, the protection, the provision, the goodness, the faithfulness, the trustworthiness, all the good salvation feelings that we feel. We want all the good stuff of him, but we don't actually want him. He wants the entertainment factor. He wants to be amazed. He wants to be amazing. He wants to show up and be wowed. And it's interesting when you enter into faith communities to listen to their stories. Because when you listen to their stories, you start to hear who they really worship. I've been a part of faith communities who the object of their affection was the pastor or the sermon. And people's stories will will sound like this. I was lost. I didn't know where I was going. My life was a mess. And then I met Pastor Tim. And I'm sure Pastor Tim's great, but he's not the object of our affection. I'm sure his sermons are really powerful, but that's not the object of our worship. Sometimes it's the worship leader or the songs. I, 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 was, I was completely uninterested in church. I didn't want to be there, and I showed up, and they played this song, and it was just in the right key, and the worship leader's pants were just tight enough, and it was just like everything was perfect, and there was a little bit, of, a little puff of smoke came out at just the right time, and the Holy Spirit shows up when we play the key of C minor or whatever, and, and 
all of a sudden, salvation came. And I'm sure the worship leader was great, and I'm sure the songs were great, and I'm sure the smoke helped in some way, right? Maybe. But I've been to churches where the object of their affection is the building or the programs or the Bible studies, the coffee, the friends, the community. And can I just be honest with you? Every single one of those things are broken cisterns that cannot hold. I promise you guys, I will disappoint you. Every one of you, I promise. I will preach a sermon you don't like. I promise you that I will, there's gonna come a point where you're gonna, man, I wish Ben would have showed up to this and I'm not gonna show up. Not because I'm a jerk, but because I'm human. I promise you that Tyler's going to miss a note. It's, well, there's, one Sunday, it's going to happen, all right? It hasn't happened yet, but there's going to come a Sunday when the music is going to, you're going to be like, ooh, what just happened with Tyler? All right, that, that's going to happen. You're going to be disappointed by it in some way. I promise this building is going to disappoint you. It disappoints me every week, right? There's going to be, there's, there's going to be something that's going to disappoint you. Our faith and our hope and the object of our affection is not the church It's not the pastors. It's not the programs. It's not what happens when we're here on Sunday. It's the living God who's powerful and present and willing to speak and move in your life right now. And I think we could gather week after week after week, month after month after month, and we could actually worship the church. Simon wanted amazement. He wanted to find God on the mountaintop. He wanted to create amazing Holy Spirit moments, and he was willing to pay money for it. I'll pay anything for this. I'll do anything. I'll follow Philip around everywhere. I'll pay whatever I have to experience this, and he wanted to pay for something that was already given to him. A.W. Tozer, 40 years ago, wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Worship. One of my favorite books. Tozer was able to, in so many remarkable ways, culturally define where we were heading before we got there. 40 years ago, here's some quotes from his his book. It says, I believe that entertainment and amusement are a work of the enemy to keep dying men from knowing they're dying and to keep the enemies of God from remembering that they're enemies. He said, it's scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction available is the risen God. And he said this, the church that cannot worship must be entertained. And men who can't lead a church to worship must provide entertainment. 40 years ago, he saw that we were moving into a place where the church was becoming more about consumerism, more about entertainment, more about what can we give to you than about becoming the family of God who are missionaries to redeem and restore the neighborhoods that he's called you to. Can you imagine our first worship service in heaven? Can you imagine if we took the same posture there that we have here? Eh, that was good. I mean, I'm not, it wasn't bad. But Jesus got a little windy when he was talking about the glory of God. I mean, the angels were really good when they sang, but I, I wish they would have sang Reckless Love because I really like that one. There's something powerful. So what we do here on earth is a picture of heaven. What we're supposed to do on Sundays is a picture of our future in heaven, which is we gather together, even on gloomy days outside when it's the end of fall break and we don't have a lot of energy, guys. 
We gather together in this place and we look at the source of our affection and we say, God, we want more of you. Will you teach us how to receive more of you? Will you teach us how to be about your business? And Peter wasn't having this. Peter said, I'm not going to let our church's affection be anything other than the source. So he answered, verse 20, he said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money and you have no part or no share of this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in a hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon actually responds really humbly, surprising. He says, pray to the Lord for me that, that none of this would happen. So that none of, you, none of the things that you said would happen to me. And, and, it, and the story ends. And I kind of wish the Bible told us what happened to Simon. Like I, I wish there was a story of him like repenting and taking off his wizard's clothes and like wearing khaki pants and a pink polo and like driving a BMW or something. Like I, I wish there was like a story of him like figuring out who he is and repenting and becoming a part of the community. The story just ends. And sometimes this is how scripture works. And we have to understand this, that what's not included in scripture is sometimes just as important as what is included. And so the picture of this story is not for us to wonder what Simon is going to do. The question is not, wow, I wonder what happened to Simon. It's not like, a, it's not like a, the end of a, a TV show that's a cliffhanger for next week. What it is, is, is it poses the question to us, what are you going to do? Here's Simon. This happened a long time ago. But what are you going to do? How are your worship services going to be? What's going to be the source of your affection to the Father? What does this look like? And, And so our response to this text is not some kind of strange message about sorcery or don't watch the Harry Potter movies or something like that. It's that there's a deeper place for us to go on Sundays. There's a deeper place for us to go in worship. And as I was praying about this text all week, the thing that I kept hearing from the Father over and over and over again was Sunday morning, I want to open up a space where people can just receive. I just want to open up a space where we could actually receive from the Holy Spirit, where we could humbly position ourselves and position our hearts to say, I just want to receive. I just want to receive what you have for me. I want to receive your good news. I want to receive your truth. I want to receive your word. I want to receive some hope. I want to receive some peace. I want to receive some wisdom. I want to receive some guidance. I actually want to receive from you. Thomas Green, who's a writer that I love, writes about the three stages of prayer. He says, the first first stage of prayer is courtship. He says, prayer is all about relationships, just like marriage. And so in, in courtship, you, you, you can't really love what you don't really know. And so you're starting to kind of get to know the object of your affection. You're trying to discern, like, do I really love this person? Do I want to be with this person? And he says, that's what courtship looks like with the Father. And so oftentimes prayer is getting to know him. It's asking him to reveal himself. Moses' prayer on the mountain was, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you for who you really are. I want to know you for who you really are. And the goal is simply to get to know God better. And so this is the first 
phase of prayer. The second phase is, is the honeymoon. And it's where you move from knowledge to experience. It's where you move from head knowing to heart knowing. There's, there's not so much effort in the relationship anymore. It's not that I have to sit around and we have to plan everything and program out everything. It's that we can just be together. Every time we get together, it doesn't have to be a date. We can actually just be in each other's presence and enjoy each other's presence. We, we can hang out. And you don't have to think about how it works for us to be together. And in that, you, you begin to experience love and kindness and forgiveness and peace and grace. And this is the same way it happens with the Father. We start to learn that prayer is not just this time that I pull out and separate in my everyday life. It's not just this time where I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide 15 minutes on this day at this time. But it's this walking in the Spirit every day where I just start to be in His presence. And I just start to interact with Him. And the last move, he says, is to move from apparent love to true love. And he says, imagine the long years of married life, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the growing friendship, the knowing everything about each other, the good and the bad, and then the mundane routines that go with it. Sarah and I are going to be at 20 years married in a year. Well, a year and a couple months. 20 years, uh, which I'm getting to the point where I've been married longer than I've lived, longer than I was single before then crazy. And, and, and in that, there's, there's seasons where it's harder. There's seasons where it's more difficult. There's seasons where there's ups and there's seasons where it's down. But in the midst of all of that, there's this desolation and consolation is what he talks about. This long obedience in the same direction, this period of dryness, but we keep showing up and we keep trusting and we keep walking by faith. And, and in this move from apparent love to true love, we're asking the father to teach us to trust him. We're asking him, what area of my life do you want me to trust you more? And we understand, just like my wife is infinitely rediscoverable and I learn more things about her every single year and I grow to love her more every single year, well, the same thing begins to happen in our, with the, our relationship with our father. So we break through barriers. We push through the hard times and we receive more and more. And so what I want to do today is, just, we're gonna, the band's going to come up, we're going to go into worship and we're going to do communion. Um, but as we do, up at the, at the communion station, there's just a list of a bunch of paragraph-long prayers. It's about 10 or 15 of them that are here. And they're all prayers to receive. They're just questions for us to ask the Father to receive. And I would love it if we could enter into a worship space where we just, for the next 10 or 15 minutes, we just prayed that the Father would give us what it is that we need. That he would actually give us what we want and what he wants for us. And when I say this, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about, Lord, I need a new car. Lord, I need a bigger TV. Although there are some TVs out there on the board, I noticed. Right? There are, like, there are, like, we're not asking for just God to give us something better. We're asking him to give us of himself. And so as you come to the table and receive communion, I want to invite you to grab one of these sheets, to go back to your seat and just begin reading and when you hit one that you feel like the, Father, the Holy Spirit is saying, that's what I want. When you hit one that feels like this is, my, this is the cry of my heart right now. I want us just to rest in that this week. And I want us to take this home. And I want us just to repray this prayer over and over again this week. Maybe set an alarm three times a day. Pray it in the morning, pray it at lunch, and pray it in the evening before you go to bed. 
and just simply ask the Father to receive. And there's all kinds of things we're asking for in here. We're asking for power, we're asking for presence, we're asking for healing, we're asking for wisdom, we're asking for peace when we're anxious, we're asking for hope where we're discouraged, we're asking. And what we understand is when we go to the Father and we ask to receive, he's a good Father who wants to give us good gifts. And so part of our journey is that we become better at receiving and we learn that it's not so much about achieving. And so my hope today is that we could take a really deep breath this morning. And we could trust that there's a God in heaven who's bigger than any problem that we face, bigger than any anxiety or stress or challenge that walks in us, that's greater than this world, who wants to meet us here today. So Father God, I pray that your presence would move and work. I pray that you would be the object of our affection. I pray that our hearts would not be to be amazed by you or to get more from you, but our hearts would be to receive all that you want us to receive. So teach us to listen, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear in this space. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move, work, and breathe in this place right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Communion stations are open. Our ministry team is gonna come to the side and pray. And if you wanna pray, if you wanna say, I need to pray with somebody to receive, then come and pray with somebody. But let's open up a space for the next few minutes for us just to pray and receive from the Father.